Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Everybody has to turn on the camera, right? We do this geeky thing where everybody turns on the camera. I, I flip through. There's all my friends. You're the only friends I have on this planet. <laughs> so, so it's all about me. It's all about making me feel better. Oh, that's great. I got to say. <laughs> really, it does help. Otherwise, I have like no idea. Oh, this is great. Hey, everybody. <laughs> Coolness. Excellente. So, so um, yes, welcome back. Happy New Year. What a week. Lordy, lordy. Um, on uh, Tuesday during the book study group, which, by the way, this book study group is still going on. You can still join us. We're, I, I've completely changed my approach to this, this book, those of you who aren't doing it. Um, we started this thing maybe 12 weeks ago, and it's, it's basically a, 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 an entire read-through of my deeper dive book, Dreams of Light, and I've completely relaxed my kind of sprint to just get through the damn book, um, and it has really slowed down, <laughs> too. I, I, think, I think most people seem to appreciate it. I do, because then I don't feel so stressed out. So I, we have at least another four months. Um, everything's recorded. So if you want to come join us, you can still do that. And it's definitely a lot more relaxed and playful. And, and I've just completely changed my MO on that. Um, so that's happening. You can still join us. Maybe Andy, if you can post a link to that, that'd be great. Um, in terms of nightclub stuff, because remember, if you're new, if you haven't been to our gatherings that we're doing here today, we started this with COVID. 38 weeks ago, amazing. I really, my intention was, oh, we'll probably do this for two, three months max, but it, it's, it's still alive and kicking. So why not? I'm grooving on it. Um, and so what we do here is I, I basically don't prepare virtually anything, which is why I like it. <laughs> I just show up. Um, I'll have a little riff. I, I actually wanna share with you something I wrote just this morning. Um, that'll be my riff for today. Um, literally, I just wrote this this morning in my book. Um, so I'll could get back to that in a second. But in terms of nightclub stuff, <clears throat> we're going to be completely, um, I wouldn't say restructuring, but, but launching a nightclub 3.0 version where we're behind the scenes constructing, I think some really awesome things. Um, so stay tuned around that. It'll probably take us another month or two to get the stuff implemented up and running. But because things are so healthy in the community, we're gonna be adding a weekly meditation thing where I'll be guiding practitioners every week, um, specific to meditation, <clears throat> guided meditations, a whole series of them, um, questions and discussion only about meditation. Um, so that'll be offered. Uh, there's just a ton of stuff coming up, um, just more involvement on my part, more participation. And so we're quite psyched about that, so stay tuned. Um, we released a couple of really great interviews. I think they're, they're great, not because of me, but because of my guests. Um, the one with Fariba Bogzaran, if you haven't heard that, oh my gosh, what a jewel she is. Antoine Lutz, uh, neuroscientist, also a friend of mine, um, who's now in Lyon, France. Um, really one of the world's unique contemplative neuroscientists, blends kind of first person, third person approaches to mind. He's terrific. So we just launched him, I think, this week. Um, and then my second interview with my pen pal from Baghdad, uh, Yusuf Alhur. This guy's a rock star. He's so fun. He's so hip. He's so smart. He's just a cool dude. 
And so, oh my gosh, we talked for well over two hours. I, I, we, we almost just like could have gone the whole day. So we're about to release that one. That was just off the charts. Um, and then in terms of like propaganda programs, um, January is still a little bit on the light side because I'm trying to crank out this book. I'm literally trying to write um, this entire book within a two month period and I'm, I'm getting really close. Um, but I have a, Andy's gonna put a link up for a, a, a dream, a lucid dream yoga program I'm doing at uh, a retreat center in Vermont called, called Karma Choling. So he'll put a post up for that. And then starting in February, March, April, that's, that's my kind of spring teaching season, so to speak. There's a lot coming up. So more on that later. But before I turn to your questions, because um, that's mostly what we do here, I usually do spend a few minutes just riffing on something. And so I wanted to share with you what I literally just wrote this this morning. This is part of um, this book that I'm, um, it's, this book is, is really easy for me to write because I've been dealing with this material for decades. And, and so it's a real easy write for me. The title of this book is, uh, um, Okay, I'm Mindful, Now What? <laughs> Exploring the Wonders of the Mind. It's a critique. It's, it's a, a great support of the mindfulness revolution, but also a critique how mindfulness slides into muck mindfulness, the commodification of this stuff, how it's being perverted, distorted. And then more importantly, you know, mindfulness alone is it's the, it's just a pacifier. Mindfulness will not get you enlightened. Mindfulness sedates, tranquilizes, pacifies. Mindfulness will not wake you up. Um, insight Vipassana will, or at least can get you in that direction. So I do a critique of mindfulness and then I, I list um, a whole bunch of things, problems around it, and then eight, nine, 10 other practices that people can do like, okay, now what? Well, you've got this and you've got this and you've got that. And so this morning I wrote, I wrote two sections, one on the incredible role of therapy, that uh, therapy in my estimation is vastly underemployed in the meditative community and in the spiritual bypassing. Um, and in conjunction with that, this morning I wrote this. So I'm just going to read it to you. <clears throat> and then um, if you want to talk about this or anything else, we open it wide up. So this is what I wrote this morning. Spiritual bypassing is intimate. So spiritual bypassing is this term coined by John Wellwood, um, my buddy, he died a couple of years ago. It's basically when you use spiritual practices, meditation and the like to bypass daily relative concerns. Um, and those of you will know exactly where that came from, as I say in this first paragraph. And John, John Wellwood was a student of Trump Rinpoche, so he acknowledges this. Spiritual bypassing is intimately connected to spiritual materialism. A pathology detected by the, uh, by the meditation master Trump Rinpoche some 40 years ago <clears throat> in his amazing book, uh, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. The idea is as straightforward as it is ubiquitous. <clears throat> The ego is capable of converting anything for its own selfish, aggrandizing purposes. Practices like meditation that are designed to transcend the ego can be subverted into inflating the ego. Rinpoche defined it this way. <clears throat> so this is him. Walking the spiritual path properly is a very subtle process. It is not something to jump in naively. There are numerous sidetracks which lead to a, a distorted ego-centered version of spirituality. 
We can deceive ourselves into thinking we're developing spiritually, when instead we are strengthening our egocentricity through spiritual techniques. This fundamental distortion may be referred to as spiritual materialism. Um, and then so uh, in my experience, it's not a matter, along with spiritual bypassing, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when you're gonna be infected by these issues. So I continue here. A series of recent social studies, these were sent to me, they were really, really interesting. Some new studies. <clears throat> a series of recent social studies confirms this pathology as summarized in this abstract. So this is an abstract from a paper I was sent. Quote, spiritual training is assumed to reduce self-enhancement, but may have the paradoxical effect of boosting superiority feelings. Our results, in other words, the authors of the scientific paper, our results illustrate that the self-enhancement motif is powerful and deeply ingrained so that it can hijack methods intended to transcend the ego and instead adopt them to its own service. Oh my gosh, that's exactly what spiritual materialism is. They don't, of course, attribute any of this nomenclature to Trungpa Rinpoche. So back to me. These studies show how easily meditation can be twisted from how can I be better to how can I be better than you? <laughs> Have you noticed this? And then I found this article on The Guardian. <clears throat> this journalist, uh, Barbara Ellen, does a summary. So this is what she writes. Her, her wording here is pretty cool. So I just um, took a couple of clips from her article. You can find this if you pull up The Guardian. This article just came out like this week, I think. So this is her, self-improvement morphs into a pious one-upmanship, a contest to become the most perceptive, enlightened, enlightened, empathic, evolved, end quote. It manifests, and this is me again, it manifests in overt or covert expressions like, I want everybody to see just how wise, selfless, and mindful I really am. <laughs> I'd love to see Colbert just do a whole riff on this or Jon Stewart or Trevor Noah. It would just be hysterical. I know there's some comedians out there. This is material for you all. So, okay, this is back to me. This is what I wrote this morning. Mindfulness meditators can easily slip into elitist or exceptionalist traps, feeling that their special meditation makes them special or that they are somehow exempt from the messiness of everyday life. The purity, quote unquote, of meditation can predispose one to look down on the unwashed masses who don't meditate. <laughs> this meditative quicksand continues to snare many practitioners. And then this guardian writer continues. This is great, I like this wording. It would appear that the mindfulness movement is overrun by preening narcissists. <laughs> Such people cling to unmeasurable and irrefutable claims about their innate superiority, such as greater insight into the human condition, deeper compassion for others, and more advanced psychic abilities. These people are sashaying in yoga pants, banging on about inner peace and the true self, smiling with sad, wise eyes at your earthbound concerns. That's, that's like just perfect. It's absolutely so spot on. I, I try to do that, but back to me. Anything that has the power to cure has the power to curse. 
Wherever you find light, you will find shadows, and the brighter the light, the sharper the shadow. Mindfulness subverted into mech mindfulness is just one such shadow. Pure mindfulness is a wondrous thing. However, and this is back to her, there's a global industry seeking to monetize it, turning people into self-absorbed, smug, crystal-stroking monsters. <laughs> Incense-burning, crystal-smoking, gong-banging monsters to prove they're a cut above, uh, a cut above spiritually as well as every other way. This is just so spot on. And then my last closing paragraph and then some questions from you all. Meditative communities and an authentic teacher can help in providing corrective feedback, but not always. Sometimes the entire community slides into a codependent cult with an enabling teacher to boot. And the result is a, con a cornucopia of transference, counter-transference, projection, and a hornet's nest of unresolved psychological problems and blind spots that can bury an entire community. I won't name names, but I could name about a dozen at this point. I have witnessed these pathologies firsthand and the disintegration of entire communities along with the masters, quote unquote, that enabled them. And then once again, in, in the, this is kind of subsumed under my little riff on therapy. Once again, outside help in the form of therapy and other skillful means are invaluable in keeping things open, honest, and on track. There you go. I think this stuff is important to know about. So we'll start with um, some questions were written in. I'll start with those and then we open it up to you all, whatever you want to talk about or not. I know there are a couple of questions, Erica and David from last week. So Barry, my, my friend Barry, uh, on the last day of one of the recent Bardo retreats, it must've been Menlo, right Barry? With Bob Thurman. You mentioned that the teachings about the five niyamas were a real game changer when discussing karma, but I didn't have time to elaborate on them. Can I do that now? Sure, I can. So yeah, they were a game changer for me. Uh, and I was surprised, you know, I've been doing this stuff for 30 years. I hadn't heard about this before. In fact, I, I won't name names, but I, I got a little bit curious, um, you know, and so I started asking some really high, Rinpoche's lamas, Tibetan masters, you know, can you tell me is why the Tibetans don't talk about the niyamas? And they weren't able to answer that for me. So I, I originally started learning about this from the Theravadan um, practitioners and writers. I think it was Ajahn Amaro and, and others, really sharp scholar um, practitioners. And so the, the five niyamas, um, same term, but different meaning than like in the Patanjali Niyamas, um, five orders of reality. The way they were game changers for me, Barry, is that, um, again, this, these are these subtle insidious traps that everybody falls into. It's very easy uh, to criticize Western reductionism, scientific materialism, phys physicalism. Oh, these Westerners, they reduce everything into matter. It's, it's that reductionism is just so wrong. And, and actually it, it, it's, I wouldn't say it's totally wrong, but it's super limited, absolutely positively. But what I, but what I then started to discover, and this is what I asked one of these teachers, um, is I said, well, you know, it seems to me, Rinpoche, that 
Easterners, i.e. us, we very easily readily fall into our form of reductionism and we don't even know it. Everything is mind. Everything can be reduced to karma. And I don't think it can. Um, and the, the conflation takes place in the following way, at least is the way I suss it out, that everything arises based on causes and conditions. I mean, that's what the Buddha discovered. That's Praticca Samutpada, the teachings on dependent origination. That's what he discovered underneath the Bodhi tree, you know, really 2,600 years ago that constitutes, you could say, the intellectual content of enlightenment, that everything arises based on causes and conditions. And so what, what happens then is because karma is based on causes and conditions, it's very easy to conflate all arising with karma. And I think that's, that's a form of Eastern reductionism. Um, and so when I read about the Niyamas, they to me pointed out these other um, four orders of, of, uh, of um, descriptions of the, the arising of the phenomenal world. And so if I remember them, Utu Niyama um, is basically the law or order that deals with what we would call um, physics, chemistry. Uh, Bija Niyama would be correlative to what we call um, genetics and biology. Chitta Niyama would be correlative to what we call psychology and the mind sciences. Um, Karma niyama is what we know is, is what arises because of behavior. That's karma. Karma is just one of these five. And then dharma niyama is the last one, which has to do with, with uh, fundamental uh, principles and teachings in the Buddhist tradition, like the five skandhas and four noble truths, I think, and stuff like that. And so for me, Barry, it was the game changer because for the first time, as far as I could suss it out, um, I was learning about a wider, more integral approach to the, the arising of the phenomenal world, that you just can't reduce everything to karma. You can reduce every arising to cause and effect, but cause and effect is bigger than karma. And so this is super important to me because otherwise, I mean, this is an extreme example, but you get comments like, oh, you know, poor thing has cancer, it's their karma. Poor thing was hit by a meteor. <laughs> That's their karma. You can't really say that. That's way too facile. That, that's shrink wrap, simplistic Eastern reductionist thinking. It just doesn't hold water in my book. Reality is just not that simple. What do you do about genetic components and environmental components and all these other biological, you know, the reality is complex in that regard. And so to say everything is karmic, that doesn't work for me. And so finally to read about it, and it comes from some sutras and stuff and commentaries, mostly shas, from the commentarial tradition, the Shastra tradition. Um, this was a big deal for me. So that's enough on that. Um, Nick, I feel like being connected to a particular spiritual tradition might evoke deep symbolism embedded in that tradition, for sure. And in fact, before I continue with the question, Nick, in this conversation I had with Yusuf, we talked for a good 10 minutes. In fact, I, I posed the idea to him after the, our conversation because I thought that part was so rich. I'm gonna to suggest to him that he and then four or five other people that we both know get together and write a book. Um, 
an anthology from all the different wisdom traditions about the promise and peril of tradition, that how, how important tradition is, is unbelievably important. But also, again, it's kind of like my opening riff, wherever there's cure, there's curse. There, there's also real deep fundamental potential problems with tradition. And we got on this riff about how we were talking about, I, I'd been out to California by the Salton Sea. Have you ever been there? It's a wild place where the Colorado River was diverted like a hundred years ago. Oops, <laughs> oops, sorry about that. <laughs> so the Colorado River was diverted for like six months. So sorry, I didn't mean to really do that. And it created this massive lake that then got cut off and, it, and then it just died. It, it turned into a salinated dead sea, basically. It's, it's just, it's a nasty place. I, I, I went out there, I was so interested in it. It's like this little apocalyptic place with, uh, it's really it's charnel ground type of thing. It's really kind of wild. And so I use that as a metaphor with Yusef that this is what happens to me when tradition, when you don't allow tributaries and influxes of new teachings, wisdoms, skillful means that are not just yours. You know, when you become so provincial, so territorial, so proprietary about your path, your tradition, I think this is a really big problem. Um, and again, I won't name names, but you know, the minute these traditions circle their wagons, don't allow other teachers in, cut all the tributaries of new life waters, the waters go dead they turn into these salinated dead seas. And so I'm pitching to Yusef and then four or five other friends. Of course, this won't happen because this is like fourth on my list of books to write. But because it's anthology, maybe we can do it more quickly where I want um, these scholars from all these different wisdom traditions to write about the promise and peril of tradition. So anyway, a little bit of a riff before I got to the rest of your question. So I feel like be connected to a tradition and the dreams might follow this tapestry of symbolism. In other words, that, that the dreams might be correlative to the tradition that you're embedded in. Is this true in your experience? For sure, absolutely positively. That, you know, um, most of what we dream at night, we see during the day. And so therefore, absolutely within that maxim, no doubt. The, the symbolism that you learn the enculturation, these are called surface structures, absolutely positively um, color your dream, um, create your dream tapestry and the symbolism and the vocabulary, no doubt. Okay, so from Debbie, and then uh, we open up to Erica and David who were first and second. Someone asked the question a couple of weeks ago about why it's considered okay to, excuse me, euthanize pets. I had a question regarding Andrew's answer, <clears throat> which I believe had something to do with animals not being aware of death before the fact. Well, I actually didn't say that. I didn't quite say that, but something to that effect you could impl uh, implicate. If advanced bodhisattvas can be reborn as anything, including animals, then wouldn't it be possible that an advanced being in an animal body um, could end up euthanized? And wouldn't that violate precepts? What a, what a fascinating question. I never heard this question before. Yes, it is possible. Um, and again, there's so many correlative ideas here. What Debbie is referring to that's so true that the tuku phenomena that 
the rebirth phenomena, um, you have such power when you attain awakening that you choose your rebirth. The, the, and again, the point in the Buddhist tradition is not to get out of rebirth. The point is to get out of involuntary, karmically, habitually driven rebirth. You continue you, in quotes, because there's no you, this, this santana, this mind stream continues to take on form, but now it does so voluntarily out of wisdom and compassion. And it doesn't have to be just humanoid. It can be literally anything, not, not just the animal realm. It can be any of the 27 types of other incarnate classifications. That's in samsara. That's just samsaric uh, levels of incarnation. Then you've got all these trans samsaric um, uh, emanations. So it's, you, you can literally come back as any sentient form, but where it gets even more interesting is you can come back as a thing, <laughs> literally, literally a bridge medicine. Uh, I mean, literally any thing. Um, and so therefore Debbie, not only does your question apply to animals, it applies to the planet. It applies to what we're doing to the world. And on one level, and then I'll be very specific about your question. This is what really this tenet is, is really um, supports the whole principle of uh, pure perception, sacred world, that the world in a very real way, it is divine and every sentient being and everything, not just a sentient being. I mean, this, this could be a bodhisattva right here. I mean, when I first heard this, like 25 years ago, I said, I said, are you effing kidding me? I mean, I was just like, there's, there's no way, you know, because I, I was a bit of a scientific nerd, talk about reductionism. There's no way that this can be a bodhisattva. But I, I have since converted <laughs> into this kind of sacred insanity that I, I drink this Kool-Aid now. But again, the world is not made of matter. The world is made of heart, mind, spirit. And that includes this. And so think about how your relationship to the world would change, not just to animals, but to everything. If you realize that, you know, literally the body of the Buddha. I mean, what a, what a wonderful way. You know, you're living in, in the body. You are the body of the Buddha. It's just a fantastic way. But specifically, yeah, what you're saying is true. But there are a number of ways to maybe, I wouldn't say tweak this, but work with this. Um, if advanced bodhisattvas can be reborn as an animal, wouldn't it be possible that, you know, euthanizing an animal would end that? Yes, it's true, but it wouldn't make a bit of difference for the bodhisattva. And it wouldn't make that much difference for you because of your intention. You don't know that. I mean, I suppose on level, this level, you could say you do. But I, I gave these answers not based on my understanding of this, I gave the, this reply based on what I've heard from a number of meditation masters, Kempo Rinpoche, Trungpa Rinpoche, others. And this is one of the more, I'm not sure if controversial is the right term, but not everybody agrees on these topics. I mean, I'm sure there, and I, who am I to contest that? I can just simply tell you that, that others um, would not agree with this approach. Um, I'm just simply sharing the information that I was given by teachers I really respect, that if your motivation is pure, it's okay to put down your pet. Because as they both told me, they, they, pets do not learn from their suffering the way we do. 
And so with that, you do with it what feels right for you. I remember I had a long conversation with uh, Judith Simmer Brown. She's a PhD. Um, actually, Emeritus, I think she just completely retired from Naropa, a dear friend of mine. And when I was writing my book, Preparing to Die, I talked to her about this at length. And she was terrific. She said, you know, Andrew, at a certain point, here's what, you do, here's what I do with it, um, meaning her. We're talking about suicide, I think. Suicide and euthanasia and abortion and all these really difficult, really difficult issues. And I was asking her, like, where do you come down on all this stuff? And she goes, you know, here's the way I roll with it. And my friend, Ken Wilbur, I had the same conversation with Ken. I said, how do you feel about euthanasia? And we had a whole riff on that. In fact, that one's recorded, by the way. You'll find that on his integral um, life site, where basically both of them said, actually more Judith, take the information in, really reflect upon it, do your best to understand the laws of karma, and then make your decision. You know, yes, it helps to have these um, kind of uh, influxes of information from the great meditation masters, but I was, I was pleasantly surprised to hear from her. She didn't say, oh, you should just completely capitulate and do whatever your teacher tells you. I mean, again, that's just her. I appreciated what she said, you know, digest it yourself, look within your heart, check your motivation, and then do what feels right for you. So um, along those lines, I'll let that one go for now. But that's a good question. I'd never heard that one before, Debbie. That's, that's pretty, pretty interesting. Okay, so if Erica and David are online, we can bring them on. <clears throat> yeah, David's here, so um, we'll bring in David. Oh, we got some live ones, some more live ones came in. Cool, we can get those in a second too. <laughs> hi, David. Hi, um, hi, Andrew. Um, well, uh, funnily, half of my question talks about dead ones, <laughs> but at least I'm still alive here. Um, so, uh, what, what you've been talking about intersects a lot with with my my two questions or points. One is on language, and you know, you're talking about how just now about how tradition affects it, but the language that we speak is so critical huge um, if we have if we use the terminologies of a dead world or a world that, that's just cartesian then uh we believe it because we're, we're convincing ourselves again yep. and again and again and if you if you don't get out of that language how do you do it and trunk Rinpoche talked about taming the english language that's right uh so uh you know, and, and so what do you, what would you say on this? And when are you going to write a book about it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. Right. Yeah. What, what an oxymoron, uh, moronic kind of thing to write a book about the language of books, um, about the limits of, uh, of, of language. I thought about this quite a bit, my friend, um, as in fact have a ton of philosophers. I mean, Wittgenstein, Benjamin Lee Worf. I mean, some of the uh, Alfred North Whitehead, a ton of really sophisticated thinkers have thought a ton about this, um, and it's a super important topic. In fact, if you're, if you're doing the book study group, you may remember way back in the very first session, I started with a 50-minute riff on exactly this, where what you're saying is true. Um, Benjamin Lee Worf, the great semanticist linguist, wrote a, a seminal book way back when called Language, Thought, Reality how it is in fact, just like you're saying, that language is, and my friend uh, also David Loy writes a lot about this, 
language is a monumental player in the construction of our world. Um, it's dualistic in nature. It's um, reified in nature. Um, it, it implies subject object verb. So that's dualistic. It implies nouns. So it's therefore uh, reified. Um, and fundamentally those are completely antithetical to the nature of reality, right? There is no subject object. Um, and there are no nouns. There are no nouns. There's just mm -hmm. verbs. And so, it, you know, language is a, it's what separates us from the beasts, but it's, it's a, also that which limits us, us, limits us dramatically if we don't understand the profound limitations of language. And so what we do is we do what we, those who are interested, we do what we're doing here. We study, we, we try to understand our captors so that we can make a prison break. And so we use then language, um, but we try not to let it use us. And that's why we have poetry and music and the arts. And you know, as you know, thought transmission lineages, symbolic lineages, lineages of transmission of information that are not linguistic in this classic sense. So that's the best we can do. And most people, they wouldn't even know what we're talking about here. They're so capitulated to living in, in a world based on linguistic principles that they don't even know that they don't know. Um, so it's, it's really important. I remember that one of the first articles I ever wrote was exactly on this topic, that how, how it is that language, like for instance, you know, you take the word tree, right? In fact, I remember that's what I use as my example. You take the word tree. Well, tree is a very convenient, shrink-wrapped, conceptual, and somewhat immortal. This is why people like to write. It's a form of immortality project. Your words go down in infamy, or your words go down in, 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 in fame and fortune or history. Um, but you know, the word tree shrink wraps a wildly complex process. The tree, you know, it, what is the tree? It, it's it's an incredibly complex interchange on biochemical, chemical, solar, energetic levels. But that's not, it's not very convenient to talk about reality in that more honest way. It's a lot more convenient to say tree <laughs> and then dismiss the messiness and the complexity, the deep ecology behind the arising of any phenomena. So uh, I'm, not, I'm, sure, I'm not sure what else to say about that outside of just, you know, this is why in our tradition, we have the three pedagogical um, prajnas. We have the three tools of hearing, that's still linguistic. Contemplating, yeah, you're starting to purify, you know, you're, it's less conceptual, it's more embodied. Not so much language now, it's more felt. And then, of course, that's why we work with meditation. Uh, meditation is completely trans-conceptual, trans-verbal, trans-linguistic. And that's when you really know. So, you know, it's like memory, you know, use memory, but don't let it use you. Use language, but don't let it use you. Use technology, but don't let it use you. And so understanding the limitations, challenging those, questioning those, is incredibly important because otherwise we just think that the world actually abides by these um, maps. The map is never the territory, no matter how elegant. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I simply can just agree with you that it's incredibly important topic. And I, I sure as heck I'm not gonna write on it because 
there are philosophers and thinkers much more sophisticated than me that have done this for hundreds and hundreds of years. So I just joined them in this chorus of kind of uh, attacking, celebrating the contributions of the map, um, what it has to offer, but then also being acutely, painfully aware of how limited it is. In mathematics, the same thing. People say, well, mathematics is an objective description. Give me a break. I mean, Matthew Ricard just rips that idea to shreds. Even mathematics, we think it's the purest, you know, non-subjective um, language. No, it's not. It's still, a, it's still a thought construct. It's still a conceptual construct. Maybe somewhat cleaner in the sense that, you know, it's, it's a universal language, but it's still a language nonetheless. Um, so anyway, maybe enough on that, but that's a good one. It's wonderful to engage in the yoga of trying to see through our, our uses. Oh, no kidding. And isn't it? Of language and any other thought construct. And just, yeah, I mean, basically, just engage, in, in, engage, with, engage with it. In a certain way, that's what Nagarjuna did, right? I mean, in a certain way, that's, you know, that's why the whole dialectic debate tradition came about, where, you know, you, you bring this to Nagarjuna and he would just shred it, right? And then what are you left with? Nothing. And that's not very comfortable for people. But, you know, again, then you use these methods as relative skillful means. You use them as tools, upayas. You just use them for purposes of uh, benefiting others, all the while knowing how unbelievably limited they are. And this is why, again, I, I, I don't have a whole lot of patience anymore for, for kind of professional philosophers, professional pedagogues. Because in my opinion, they're just really simply spinning around in extremely subtle, sophisticated language traps, maps. I get really bored with that kind of thing. If there's no praxis, if there's no transcending methodology, upaya, I'm not interested because you can just talk yourself, you know, that's what philosophers have done in the pejorative sense for thousands of years. It's just boring to me. So anyway, there you go. Second question. Oh, okay. Um, and, it, and this, um... This is probably even somewhat personal to you, because um, you know within the uh, uh, the bardo of death, um, uh, I was really struck at the end of Basha Trzanski's funeral service. Oh, I, don't know I if heard you... about that. Yeah, Basha Basha was a dear friend. Yeah, I heard about of, that. Of, comedy, yeah, and of mine too. Um, she used to be a neighbor here when I first moved to Boulder. She was did me an immense good turn the second person i spoke to there and just a lasting impression um for for years anyway knew her family uh pretty well yeah sweetheart uh, and, and so uh at you know and so her husband ludwig said she had signs of realization for the first 24 hours the heart warm and the skin supple and okay. various her teachers were, were saying that she was an accomplished practitioner particularly in being very, very um, unassuming about what she knew um, and being very humble about it. Uh, but when she was asked what, what pure land she wanted to go to, she said she wanted to go into the mind of her teacher, Trungpa Rinpoche. Yeah, beautiful. And, um, and I, I believe that, um, you know, Trungpa Rinpoche said, when you're dying, uh, just call on him. He'll always be there for you. Now, and, and I had a, a personal experience with someone else you might know. Uh, did you did you know Paul Halpern? Uh, Paul. He used to live. Paul Halpern. 
Uh, he married Faye Halpern, moved out to Erie, was Kossung's Kossung. I probably um, have met him. I can't, I can't bring a face to the name, but anyway. Well, you know, he, um, he, he died, um, well, six or eight years ago. And, um, um, you know, he had some signs of realization, but I went in with some, uh, my son and, and, and another Kossum, and we, we did um, a Kossum practice in which we invoke Trunk um, Rinpoche as the Dorji Drottle and did the feast offer for him. It was the last thing before his funeral for the night. And, um, and here I'm someone, and I've mentioned before that ordinarily I don't visualize. Um, All right. Except when I'm sleeping, right? But here, when I did this um, uh, practice for Paul um, late at night, uh, I experienced something where um, I, I would swear that when we called on Trung Purpose to come for Paul, that Trung Purpose appeared uh, and, um, uh, and the visualization was so strong, I could taste the dust. I could, t I could, I could hear the sounds. Uh, I'll, you know, it's, you know, the visualization is pretty glorious, and it, it wasn't, it, it wasn't a visualization. Trunk Rinpoche came there. It was a vision, yeah, yeah. And I must swear that Paul saluted him, came to attention, and Paul left with him. That's awesome! I love these stories. I love and these Paul, stories. And and in the morning, Paul's wife said. What did you do there? Something special happened up there, and I felt all of a sudden everything was going to be okay. Yeah, yeah. and and the you know my son and the other costume both afterwards saying, "Wow, this this was real. We experienced this." Yeah, yeah. Uh, my mind was a little stronger than theirs, but it was it was real. So the, again, it was calling on Trunk Rinpoche yeah. at that point. Yeah, lots of preparation. Paul yeah. was a very experienced meditator, uh, practitioner in, in Shambhala arts and Kudo and on and on and on, costing work. Um, um, uh, but it, ultimately, in both of these cases, it was calling on Trunk Rinpoche. So uh, now, now I haven't heard you talk so much about that particular way because we're, sure. Uh, what, what would you say to this? I would just say Amaho. <clears throat> it's a form of Guru Yoga Poa. Um, and it's, yeah. it's actually, it's actually, um, <laughs> there's a lot to say here. First of all, what a great story. I love this stuff that, you know, it's actually part of the job description, um, playfully, quote unquote, of these great minds. I mean, even Padmasambhava, if you read his book, I think it's called White Lotus. He guarantees this sort of thing, you know, that, that if you call from the bottom of your heart, to your teacher, mm -hmm. it's actually Sogyal Rinpoche, so many other teachers say this, that's actually part of their job description, right? They will be there. I mean, they're never, they're never not there, but they're concentrated. Yeah. And, and so um, absolutely positively, it's one of the, and in fact, Chucky Nimba Rinpoche once, <clears throat> when he was teaching on the Bartles said the same, very similar thing. He said, you know, when you're dying and, and all else fails, or you don't really know what else to do. He just said, call out from the depths of your heart to your teacher. Absolutely, positively. Uh, I, I used to have this annoying thing about 15 years ago where I, where I used to ask 
you know, the most influential people that I was around, sometimes in public settings, you know, like, what would you do if you just had a, a minute left to live? What would be your irreducible instruction? And I remember a number of really sophisticated and super intelligent people, would, a number of them would say, think of your teacher, visualize your teacher, bring your teacher to mind. So, it, you know, it, for those who have a connection to devotion, devotion is everything, everything. It, it's, it's the super juice of the Vajrayana. It's what makes the Vajrayana so powerful. And also if that isn't harnessed properly, so dangerous. It's using the most powerful force in the universe, which is what? Love for the purposes of awakening. So in this case, it's, it's a form of Guru Yoga Poa where um, you know, the, that energy is concentrated, your heart opens, that, that channel is, is whatever kind of phenomenology is taking place there. It doesn't really matter that much to us. But that's what I'm going to do when I'm going to die. I'm going to do the Sadhana Mahamudra, my heart practice. I'm going to think of my teacher. And absolutely positively, that's, that's what I'm going to do. So um, thank you for sharing that story. I just say, e maho, spot on. Cool. Thanks, David. Thank you. Okay, beautiful. All right. So Erica was on, had a question from last week. And then we'll open it up to some others if Erica's here. Um, I don't think Erica is here, actually. Okay. Um, but there's some more raised hands. So uh, next we can bring in Myra. Okay. Hello, happy new year. Hi, happy new year. How are you? Good. So I'm all nervous because I, um, I've been listening again over and over to Fariba's uh, uh, interview because I relate really a lot to her experience. And uh, you may remember that precognitive uh, dreams are my nightmare in a way. So, say again, so the, the dream, Dreams of precognition have been my nightmare. Oh, precognitive dreams. Yeah, we started a conversation <laughs> yeah. with that, yeah. So, okay. um, and they've been my, my nightmare because they feel heavy on me because I do not know what to do with them. Um, in a way, because I find that it, they can be traps. And then I learned through you, yeah, they are traps. And, and then we talk about some of these things, how they, you're looking for not, um, not, not seeing as a CD, as a relative CD, but just allowing them to reveal just signposts and, and do not attach to them. But this is a dream. And the dream that I wanted to share I had a just when I was in your uh, retreat, the green retreat uh, last October, just before we began. And uh, if I may have a little time in this dream, I dreamt that um, I, I enter into a room that is really white and I see Melania Trump. <laughs> and I have been asking, trying to see who was going to win the election. And I get close to Melania and the first thing is going to be how pretty my mind is. But I look her at how well, she has a lot of makeup. She's not really that pretty. <laughs> and after that, I tell Melania, Melania, I had a dream with you and there was lucidity at that moment. I had a dream that you're going to be moving to a smaller house. And um, so her eyes water all of a sudden. And I said, I'm not telling you what is going to happen. I just, I'm telling you that I had a dream that you're moving to a smaller house and she was in a lot of pain. And I got very nervous. And then through a wall, I see outside of that house. And then there is, is the street is full of people uh, in a march and they had uh, signs of the flags and Trump signs. 
and I say, why are those people so close to the house? They are too close to the house and that is very dangerous. So I tell everybody this dream. I even share a little bit of the dream in the group when we were sharing with the groups. And I told everybody, because for me, I knew that their dream had some meaning. So the election came, I said, oh, she's moving to a different house, he lost. But yesterday when I came home and I look at the TV and I saw what the TV was showing, I yeah. saw the same scene. It was almost like virtual cool. reality and cool. I was transported to my dream. And I saw the same scene that I saw in my dream. So this is the question. <laughs> Those dreams are really heavy. And in myself, I don't have any doubt that they happen. I do not know whether they have any more value or I do not know what I do with them. If I could see previous lives, I would tell you that in a previous life, I was stuck right there and I don't want them to become so heavy. I don't want to become where you just are blinded by the experience. Do, do I explain my question? Yeah, I think I got it. Yeah. You know, just like... Uh... With other things, Myra, that, you know, any situation only gets as heavy as we impute it to be. So, uh, you know, what I'm sussing out here, and I know you well, so I'm going to speak honestly with you, that um, you're reifying it a little bit too much. Otherwise, it wouldn't be so heavy. Otherwise, it would just be informative. Um, and so the reification is taking place because you're such a, 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 an impassioned, beautiful soul that it's weighing down on your sensitivities, and so you're the one that's making it heavy. Um, in and of itself, it's just information. And so I would perhaps maybe try to honor the dream for what it is giving to you. You know, it, it's a, you have shamanic um, talents, which is beautiful. It's fantastic. Celebrate it. But don't take it, you know, again, take it seriously, but don't take it so literally. Because otherwise, these kind of gifts can become a burden. Um, and it's, you know... So I would maybe, maybe pay a little bit more attention to that and, and realize just the fact that it is an offering, it is a gift, that you're, you're open enough, you're porous, transparent enough, where, and, and dreams are, I, I mean, I have a number of these, um, as do, I mean, William James was tormented about these sort of things. You know, it, his, his views on, uh, in fact, you should read um, his, uh, this book called The Illusion of Will, Self, and Time. William James's oh. Reluctant Guide to Enlightenment. The book starts with a really incisive look at exactly this topic. Um, and precognitive dreams are, these are incredibly impactful, powerful events. So I would simply recommend, allow yourself to celebrate the gifts that you get when you receive these types of dreams. Um, and don't think in some way that they're special while at one level they are special. Just don't make them special. Don't make them heavy. Let them simply be these informative glimpses that they really are. And then you can use them to inform you. What you actually do with them is a bit of a personal matter. I, I'm not going to, you know, tell you what to do with them. Um, but, you know, maybe look at the job descriptions of the shamans. <laughs> See, you're like the third person this last six months. I've said something to be like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, but, learn, that's what shamans do, you know, they, they have this capacity and, and they use it to benefit others. So don't, don't take these things too personally. Don't, in a certain level, I would almost say don't take them at all. Allow them, receive them, but don't take them. Because if you take them, you'll take it upon you, then they become a burden and then they become heavy. 
Um, um, and so, you know, a lot of so-called mystic psychic shamans, you know, they have this access to these relative cities. And then part of what makes a shaman different from, from an amateur is their relationship to these experiences. They know how to deal with them as gifts and, and they don't burn out, they don't get in burden. They just realize, hey, my, my radio is just tuned into that frequency. And I'm just gonna listen to that, pay attention to it. It's going to inform me. You know, how you work with it to work with others, that's a massive question, probably beyond our scope. But something like that, Myra, is what I would do. You know, take it seriously, but don't take it so literally and don't take it too seriously. Let it inform. No, now, now that it happened yesterday, it was almost like there was a release of energy. I do not feel the same heaviness anymore. It's almost like yeah. it's a confirmation. And I'm, I've been embarrassed all my life of having this kind of dream. So I have no, no I, would, I wouldn't be embarrassed. I would celebrate. <laughs> you may want to look at, you may want to look at this, uh, this YouTube clip. Um, just Google it. Um, airline dream airline oh, crash yeah, prediction. I have you seen it. that? Yeah. yeah. I would watch that a couple times. I mean, that poor guy, you know, he predicted he had multiple dreams about that American Airlines crash, that DC-10 in Chicago, and he was tortured by it. Um, I, you know, if I was able to talk to him, I, I might say something to him like I said to you, you know, give yourself a break. You know, you did everything you could about it and, and receive the, the dream for the gift that it is. And then as with anything else, let it go. Let it go. So something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Read, read, up, <laughs> read up on shamans because you're you're probably a shaman. You just now you need to a little bit learn about you know their job description and what they do. You might want to. The look funny into thing it. is that is something I fear is the the part of the of the how confusing and blinding that energy can be because it can be so empowering. I tie it to what you were saying at the beginning. So I have a fear of becoming something that is just like egomaniac of yeah, the energy. Well, that can happen as well, right. Um, but that's not gonna happen with you. But you know, I mean, just the fact that you ask that question means it won't happen to you. But we need to keep asking those questions all the time because otherwise those, you know, it, it turns into a sorcerer's trap. You actually can right. become blinded by that sort of thing. And then it becomes, it can become a problem. Um, and that's why the traditions don't emphasize this stuff at all, zero. In fact, they warn against it because relative city has a, a provisional place for helping others. It's never about you. Right. Absolute city, absolute city. You know, don't let that have power over you. That's what the traditions are. So as long as you keep asking that question and, and uh, being you know, nervous about um, the self-aggrandizing aspects of these types of gifts, then you'll never have a problem with it. The problem becomes when you stop asking those questions and you somehow think you're special. That's a problem. I mean, you're special. I love you. You Jumping. know that. But you're yeah, not. Yeah, I know. But, you're not but you're not that special. Yeah. <laughs> no. Okay. That one quick thing. I think your lucid dreaming book is an actual very good uh, book to be able to like in my small community. I was thinking that maybe we can follow the chapters. Um, everybody like is have oh, a cool. leader and just facilitate the following the different chapters of the book. So I wanted your permission to do something like that. No, absolutely, you don't need my permission. Uh, no, that's that's sweet of you. Yeah, that'd okay. be great. Go for it. Okay, thank you. Okay, bye bye. Bye. Okay. Any uh, one more live one, and then I'll couple get a couple dead ones. Yeah, um, we'll bring in Vanessa next. Hi. Hi. Can you, can you hear me? Yeah. 
Awesome. Uh, this is our first virtual meeting. I'm so happy to be here cool. and to have found yeah. you and to be a part of this community. Well, I love your way. Um, I always, I'm always really nosy. So I love, I love your little, that, this is like what, this is the cover of one of Pema Children's books. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember which one, but walking, 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 walking. Anyway, sorry. I, 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 I'm, all, <laughs> I'm always really nosy about people. Like, what do you got back there? Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. No, no, no problem. So I, I, I have a, a couple of questions. Uh, okay. The first, the first part is um, in the last few days of my meditations, um, I'm, I'm noticing I'm getting really relaxed and then starting to head towards uh, the liminal state because an image will pop up yeah. and then I'm like, oh, wow, this feels just like trying to fall asleep. So um, my question is, does um, in an evolved meditation practice, does it mirror falling asleep through waking, dreaming, sleeping, yes, whatever, through brain waves and states of consciousness? And the lucid part is the witnessing part of it. Okay, thank you. That's and then the state right. of, thank you. And um, the state of flow consciousness, where I'm, I'm in the flow of whatever. I, I'm, 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 I lose myself. I'm caught up in doing whatever that activity is. Is that an inherently lucid state of consciousness, or is that more like being caught up in a non-lucid, feel-good dream? So, so I'm a little confused. So now, you, now you're not talking about a dream anymore. Now you're talking about a waking experience. That's a separate question. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. Right. So, so you're, you're, so you're in, you're in a kind of zone flow state in the waking experience, right? Yeah. Because in, um, I don't know, I think Marty Seligman who has studied, um, right. So he'll talk about the state of flow, right? Absolutely. And so just so, reiterate the actual question behind it. So, just so my question it. is, is the state of flow an inherently lucid state or is it more like being caught up in a feel-good non-lucid dream uh you know it, it can be either it depends on on you and your in your relationship to the experience you know when a flow state is is actually experienced um properly where it's a relatively it's like meditation in action it's a relatively selfless state where, I mean, you know what it's like, you know, you've, you've kind of um, entered this somewhat transpersonal, uh, sometimes in tantric language, they use the, the, the phrase, you, you know, entering the action where um, there's no longer this constant, and this, I'm saying this as a, as, a, as a description of it and also as something you can play and work with, you will discover that what actually brings about the flow state is a type of samadhi absorption state into what's actually happening. And so when that's done purely and completely, that's the way the Buddhas live. So we, we have intimations of that complete flow state where, you know, you literally just, you become nothing, but you become everything. You, quote unquote, just dissolve into whatever arises. That's the ultimate flow state. What we experience, what you're talking about are intimations of that, you know, tastes, glimpses of that flow state. And the reason they're glimpses is because there's still a very subtle reflexivity taking place. There's still, maybe maybe not so much when you're having it, and that I can't, I can't say, I don't know the depth of your immersion, <clears throat> but there can be little flickerings of, of, of reference or contraction. Even when you're having it, it's like, whoa, I'm having a flow state. You'll find that if you actually 
um, end up feeling or saying that a lot, you're no longer in the flow state. So very often those are retrofitted when you're actually purely in a flow state, there's none of that commentary. That's what actually defines the flow state. There's none of that. It's relatively thought-free. And so that's the issue. How relatively thought-free is it? How um, free of self-reference is it? And so if it's completely free of self-reference, again, that's the way the Buddhas live. They live in that utter, completely, it's called spontaneous presence, um, completely effortless. It's just, it's just total liberation spontaneous activity um, that is just blissful. We can approximate that in these experiences like you're talking about, but because we're not completely open, we're still somewhat contracted, we'll, we'll have greater or lesser degrees of this immersion space. So, you know, I simply say, um, fantastic, they're great. Very often these situations happen serendipitously and they often arise in physical activities when the mind just becomes entrained with the body, the body takes over. And the body is always already present and is, your body is always in the flow state. It's just the mind and the body are not synchronized. So that's why most of these spaces takes place in, in some type of physical activity. But with that said, it can be cultivated. You can nurture this in meditation. You know, the, the jhana states, the samadhi states, they're a type of flow state. So classic flow states, you know, this is all initiated by this Czech psychologist. I love his name, Mihai. If you can pronounce his name, you get a Nobel Prize, right? Mihai, Chick Chick Mihai. You know, he's got this like 16 syllable last name. I had to ask, I had to ask my father who, whose first language was Czech. And even he stumbled on it for a second before he told me how to pronounce this guy's name. So you have to be in a flow state even to say his name. <laughs> but um, something like that. You know, they're, they're fantastic, but they, they happen serendipitously, usually based on physical activities, but they can be cultivated. Meditation, Tai Chi, yoga, body movements, Lujong, Trokor, all the kind of somatic meditations actually help bring that about. So they're wonderful glimpses of the um, ultimate flow state, which is awakening. So something like that. Thank you so much. And then yeah. one quick other question, sure. which is... Okay. Besides you doing um, dream yoga practices, do you personally mine your dreams um, for creativity? Yeah, I do. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Positively. I, sometimes I'll do them with direct incubation techniques. Sometimes I'll do them a little bit like you were saying with liminal dreaming. Um, if you haven't read Jennifer Dumpair's book on, on uh, that topic, literally called liminal dreaming, I might recommend it. Um, but I absolutely, you know, Thomas Edison did it, Salvador Dali did it, um, so many people do it. I do it sometimes directly, like if I'm looking for some ideas or whatever. But often, um, and this is what I was talking about with Fariba Bogzaran, who I interviewed, this really elite, beautiful dreamer who's also an artist. You know, my relationship is very similar to hers, where, you know, I've been living and swimming in this stuff for so long that, that, um, I don't necessarily even have to incubate these sorts of things anymore because it's just so much part of my life that they just, it's just a natural byproduct of doing that. But on specific occasions, yes, I will do a very specific incubation or kind of a targeted thing. But most of the time I just stay open and allow the creative impulses to do their thing. Okay. Great. Thank you so yeah. much. Nice to meet you, Vanessa. So you I'm going to take, a, I got one or two here and then we, uh, that were written and then we can take a couple more. So Elizabeth, how do you spell Niyama? Um, N-I-Y-A-M-A. 
and where can you learn about it? I, I don't know of a single text. There are, um, you'd be surprised and, and it's, it's almost a cop-out, but it's true if you just Google it. <laughs> it's like, well, that's a cheap answer. Um, if you just Google the five niyamas, it'll probably take you to Patanjali and the Yoga Sutras. That's not, it's again, same word, not the same meaning. But you will find articles, um, Lion's Roar articles, Ajahn Amaro, there's some uh, commentarial literature. Um, I don't know of a single source text. There is a sutra that talks about it and the, the title just escapes me now. But um, if you literally, I hate to say it, uh, it's a cop out, but if you just Google the darn thing, you will find there's, I know there's some Zen writers who have written on it. I can't think of their names. My first uh, introduction to it was, I think, through either Buddha Dharma Magazine or Lions Roar a number of years ago. And I think it was Ajahn Amaro who wrote about it. So there's not a ton out there, but there's some, um, and you can find it. Uh, okay, I'll get to Ted in a second. Um, you have mentioned, this is from Artbite? Artbite. You have mentioned in relation to Bardo Yoga that death is the dream at the end of time. Yes, that's one way the Buddhists talk about death. Um, they talk about three types of dreams, and death is referred to as the dream at the end of time. My understanding from studies of the Dalai Lama is that there is no end of time. Um, well, yes and no. Let me, let me finish, and then I'll come back. That there is no end of time, therefore there is no time. I'm sorry, therefore there is no death. Dalai Lama mentions the Tibetan saying, Everyone dies, but no one is dead. Can you share some of your insights on this topic in relation to transmigration and or reincarnation? Yeah, sure. Well, yes, on one level, there is no end of time because there is no time. It's just like language. Time is a construct. Even space is a construct. Um, and even Einstein said this. You know, I mean, space and time are constructs. They're not givens. So time only exists as a construct in relative reality. Um, and therefore, yeah, on one level, there is no death, absolutely positively. What you have to do to play with these sorts of things is uh, kind of centrifuge out relative from absolute truth. On a relative level, there is death. On a relative level, there is time. On a relative level, there is space. You, you can't just deny that. That's um, nihilistic at best. But when you really look underneath the hood and, and you examine things, um, there is no time. And so therefore there's no end of it. And so when they talk about death is the dream at the end of time, well, this is from a relative perspective, right? I mean, you gotta, you kinda gotta say something. It's a little bit like David's thing, or what else are you gonna do? You know, I, I could try to mime it, right? I could try to dance it, paint it, sing it. You gotta kinda say something. And so, you know, on one level, you could say death and put everything in quotations. Well, death, there is death, but there isn't any death. Dream, nothing's a dream, but everything's a dream. Time, is there time? Yes and no. So you have to centrifuge out these different domains of truth. Um, and I think if you do that, you'll solve, in fact, often when you kind of come across these ironies and paradoxes, seeming contradictions, usually it's because you have a clash, a juxtaposition of relative and absolute truth. And if you titrate, you center, not titrate, but if you separate those out, you'll be able to find something that becomes workable. So um, I'll leave it at that. Uh, there is actually a very interesting set of uh, teachings 
Dialogues of Krishnamurti with David Bohm, a physicist. <clears throat> something, I think it might be, what's the title of it? Um, has to do something like, I think the ending of time or something like that, where Bohm gets into this sort of thing, even from a physical point of view. So I think that's probably enough on that. Another a live one, Andy, and then I'll get Ted's political question here. <laughs> we'll bring in Peter next. Hi, Andrew. Hi. Thank you so much. Uh, I wanted to ask uh, something re re relating to something you, well, what you spoke about earlier about with karma, because I find, uh, well, let me say first, you kind of really shake me up <laughs> uh, in, in the best way, because I, I think sometimes like I've got things figured out. Like for example, uh, karma, I guess I, after what you said earlier today, I. I recognize that I, I am a kind of a reductionist oh. when it comes to karma. And I'm thinking everything ultimately is related to the karma. And it's not just like a cause and effect. Yeah, but it's cause and effect in terms of actions of the body, uh, physical actions in, in terms of speech and in terms of mind, you know, what your thoughts. So all of that, take all of that and you want to understand it. You want to be comprehensive. It all comes down to karma. So there's a law operating here. So I thought, you know, okay, I've got it all. I kind of got it all figured out. Similarly with the expression sentient being. So when I understood sentient being to be feeling, anything that feels, anything that can experience suffering uh, or pain. So anything that has sentiment. So that's a sentient being. Mm -hmm. And then I felt, okay, now I've got my, my universe kind of mapped out. And here you come along before and you say something about the about, um, a bodhisattva, and you pick up the pen, and you say, "So this is a bod this could be a bodhisattva." So that kind of floors me at that yeah. point. No well, kidding. A pen which has no feeling, as far as I can tell, or a wall. There was a time once, actually, when I recall someone saying, "You know, this wall here, which protects us from the cold and the wind, that's a bodhisattva." I remember being taken aback by that a bit. And not discounting it. I thought, yeah, there's some kind of truth to that. But that was a long time ago. So recently, I mean, just now, when you talk about a pen or a bridge being a bodhisattva, I'm thinking, okay, maybe I could understand this, but give me a handle, or in a sense, no pun intended, or well, give me a bridge so I can go to that thought and then make it feasible in my mind. Yeah, right now, <clears throat> sentient. Sentient means feeling, sensible. You have sensitivity, so you can suffer or you can have pleasure and pain. I understand. Yeah, I understand. So how do you how do you see an object or so-called inanimate objects, things, physical things in the world? How can they be beings that feel? Well, they, again, they, they not necessarily. This is where you have to centrifuge out again the difference between sentience and, and things like mine. Um, trust me, when I first heard these teachings, I had exactly the same checkmate, this kind of checkmating of the mind and like, you know, are you, what? And that's why I, I, asked, I asked so many teachers because I said, this is so antithetical to my view. So you, there's a number of things thrown in here. You know, the issue of sentience is one, that which experiences pleasure and pain. Um, that's the way they define that. How intimately that is connected to what we're talking about here, um, I'm a little bit agnostic or open-ended on that. But the way 
the place, one of the places to go specifically and then generally around this stuff <clears throat> is to look at the tulku phenomena. Um, there are four types of tulku. Again, it's just beyond the scope of what we can talk about here. But interestingly enough, his name, Tulku Tunda Prambuche, has written, uh, I think it's the only book on this topic, and it's right on the corner with a title, of course, that I can't remember. Um, yeah, I have to run out and, and pull it out. I know exactly where it is, but it'd take me 30 seconds. Um, Tulku Tunda, if you look up his books, he has one entire book on the Tulku phenomena where he, he discusses this type of process. You will also read about it um, in the second chapter of, of Shantideva, Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, the Bodhicharya Avatara, where, you know, when I first read that thing, remember, if you remember those verses, may I be a bridge for those who all, may I be the medicine, may I be a bird. Yeah. I said, oh, that's lovely. What a nice poem. Oh, how sweet. And then I, I realized later, it, 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 it's not poetic. He's actually being quite literal. You know, may I be that bridge? May I be that whatever? And so let me share a story with you. Um, well, actually, I'll end with the story. Um, the other place I would go to, to work with this is a deep understanding and study of, of the teachings on emptiness, because what we need to do is empty out our physicalistic, materialistic view. So these proclamations are revelatory of our unconscious defaults into physicalistic reductionist materialistic views and again that's not our fault that's the way we were raised in the cult of scientific materialism we're raised in this in this perverse cult and it's deep in our system and so that's why when we first hear this it goes against the tide of everything we've been trained and um, so the way to really kind of wrap your mind is to blow your mind by studying the teachings on emptiness you know and so just ever so briefly here, again, I keep referring to Kempo Rinpoche's book, Progressive Stages of Meditation on Emptiness, just because it's so short and uh, I wouldn't say accessible, but pithy. And so in his five stages, right? Um, the second stage is going from the Shravaka, which is still materialistic. They still assert Dharma's kind of atomistic nature. The colossal transformation from the first stage to the second stage, from Shravaka to Chittamatra, this is an enormous shift. This is where you go basically from one extreme to the other. You go from a, a physical only world, which is the way we are trained, to a mind only. That's literally Chittamatra. And so that's where you start. And then what you do is then you refine what, well, what exactly is this mind? Because otherwise, what happens? Then Chittamatra becomes another form of reductionism. Everything's just mind. Well, yes and no. I mean, what, what kind of mind are you talking about? And so then you have the other three stages that refine that. You know, Svatantraka Majamaka, Prasangaka Majamaka, and then Shentong Majamaka. But all come on afterwards to help you understand this thing called mind. And so you, the only way, you know, it's like, the, the Nagarjuna, I think it was Nagarjuna, the king of emptiness once said, you know, when you understand emptiness, anything is possible. If you don't understand emptiness, nothing is possible. So what this comes up, what this reveals, and it, it did the same thing for me. It revealed my limitations of my understanding of emptiness and my reductionist views. And so it took me a long time, you know, <laughs> to, to shapeshift. And this also, if you're a contract practitioner, 
you study dakna, you study pure perception, threefold purity, you study sacred world. So we're talking about a pretty colossal transformation, uh, a revolution in both now knowing and being that shifts us into this, you know, this radically elevated view. So we're, we're basically replacing a reductionist view with an elevationist view. You know, instead of reducing everything to frisky dirt, the way my friend Ken Wilber talks about it, I love that phrase, reducing everything to frisky dirt, you elevate everything into divine heart, mind, spirit. That's beautiful. But we're not raised that way. You know, we, we haven't been brought up in that um, cult, so to speak, that tradition, that way. That's what constitutes the path. So I'll leave you with one last thing and then um, set you out for you to work on this on your own. So I, I asked these exact same questions I asked in public to Pundit Rinpoche once. <laughs> I'll never forget it. Because I, I was just like you. i just been reading this stuff and it's like, what? And so I asked Rinpoche, I said, Rinpoche, I, I, I cannot wrap my mind around this. This is so out there. It, it, it's just like, are you kidding me? And, and I said, I, can you help me? And he said something, and I'm just going to leave it at this. I will not run commentary on it. He said something like, in fact, not something. He said this. Uh, oh, actually, I asked a question. Here's, the, here's what I did. I said, Rinpoche, how do I know? How do I know that this, called, this is called diversified nirmanakaya? It, technically, that's what this is. Um, in the four types of nirmanakaya, tuku, this is called variegated or diversified nirmanakaya. That's the technical term for this in that tradition. So I said, Rinpoche said, how do you know if, if one of these diversified, variegated nirmanakayas actually appears to you, right? <laughs> and this is what he said. He said, well, Andrew, he said, it's like this. He said, it's like, well, you know, you cross over this bridge and you turn around and the bridge is no longer there. And I said, Rinpoche, that's really helpful. So I'm going to leave you with that final statement. That's really helpful. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, right. Exactly. Is the Chittamatra like, <laughs> um, yeah, now I've got something to wrap my head around. But the Chittamatra that you mentioned, is that the middle, middle way school? No, no, it's not. Um, that's middle way school is uh, Madhyamaka. Uh, Chittamatra mm -hmm. is, uh, there are two wings of the Mahayana. Okay, yes. Chittamatra. I'm not, I'm sorry. Two wings of the Mahayana are the um, Majamaka, yeah. Yogachara. Again, it's, sorry, it gets technical, but that, I mean, I'll just put it out there. Um, Chittamatra is often confused with Yogachara, but it's not Yogachara. Chittamatra is like a subset of Yogachara. Um, so it's not the same as Lindra way. It's different. It's also called a Vijnapta Mapa. And you can, you can read about this um, on that topic a book I might recommend is Luminous Heart, um, translated by Carl Bernholtzel. He, he, he goes after the whole Chittamatra thing with real elegance. Um, so I might break his 100 page introduction to that book is really good. It's an introduction to the Yogacara tradition with a razor sharp critique of Chittamatra. The Chittamatra is not, you know, we tend to think, oh, you know, it's all mind. The way Carl puts it is, is Chittamatra is, is not an honorific, a reifying honorific. Chittamatra is a pejorative. Saying that everything is mind means mm. that everything is a projection of the conceptual mind. But that's what separates Chittamatra from Yogacara slash Shentong. 
when you say everything is mind at that level, that's a whole different mind. That's clear light mind. Chitta Matra is projection samsaric mind. So whenever, when people say it's all mind, first thing you have to say is what kind of mind are you referring to? So the granularity, the only way to suss this stuff out, man, you, you gotta just wrestle with it, struggle with it, understand the granularity, understand the, the schools, the traditions, the practices that lead you to this. It's not easy because it goes against the tide of everything we've been trained. Um, but you know, it's worth the work, it's worth the effort because it'll, it'll radically transform the way you look at reality. And then someday you'll, you'll realize that, here's the other thing, not only is this the Buddha, but this is, uh, I asked Ken Wilber once, you know, this question I alluded to earlier, you know, if you only had a few minutes left to live, what would you say? And again, I asked him in a public setting and he said, you know, I was really surprised because he's like the super intellectual. He said, well, hug the person on either side of you and realize that you're hugging a deity. So the world is full of Buddhas and deities and everything around you is fundamentally the body of the Buddha. Um, and with that said, I set you out on your journey until you can come to that realization on your own. Okay? Thank you, Andrew. Yeah, you're welcome. Okay, so two more and then I got to run um, from Evelyn and then Ted. And then that's it for this week. Uh, could regularly experiencing the peace and absorption of flow states help others? Even when these experiences are solitary. Yes, of course. And it can do this in several ways. One is that um, in a more esoteric way, if you believe in this thing, and there's actually a book on this, what a surprise, called the Maharishi effect. That um, again, we're not separate from other beings. We're not separate from um, other animates and seemingly inanimate forms. And so, and actually Ken Wilber writes about this really elegantly in his book, uh, Integral Spirituality, pretty complex chapter where he talks about what are called cosmic habits and how it is that when, when people enter these absorption states, when they clean up their own mind and heart, because of the interconnectivity um, that on one level, we're all deeply inextricably connected, you're actually kind of paving a, um, a path for others. You're, you're actually being of benefit to others. Um, so on one level, this happens on that cosmic bandwidth that, that when you, again, when you understand the nature of reality, that it's not just this stupid materialistic clunky thing then that is made of heart, mind, spirit, whatever you want to call it, that what you do with your heart, mind, spirit has an effect on the world, has an effect on others. That's the kind of cosmic level. On the more kind of um, immediate level, the peace and absorption of the flow states that you experience will leave a trace with you. They will eventually transform you. And then that will definitely benefit others because then when you come out of that space, that tranquility, that stability, that flow state actually becomes somewhat contagious. Um, it can really influence other in a more direct embodied way. So absolutely positively, you're not just doing this stuff for yourself. I mean, these practices have more impact than you think. I mean, on a, on a converse level, here's the way it works on the other level. And this might be interesting as well in relation to the previous question. In a, in a I can't remember the text, um, but Trunga Rinpoche, just an amazing master, one said something along, somewhat along these lines that really struck me. Um, this is my language to what he said. You know, he's talking, alluding to the kind of interconnectivity 
of mind and world, where in a converse way, what he was saying was that, you know, if people in a particular environment are really aggressive, and again, you draw your own conclusions on this, but I, I was blown away when he said this. Um, if people in a particular locale are really aggressive environment, nasty, mean, he said eventually that environment will be infected. And you will notice um, earth, things like earthquakes and floods and disasters. Uh, hello, world, hello. Um, and so again, this is stupefyingly interesting slash profound, you know, that, that when you work in a really positive way, you have a profound impact on the environment. And in fact, uh, this is interesting plug on a program. I'm doing two programs with Bob Thurman this year on pure lands. And one of the teachings is, one of the programs is gonna be on tantric pure lands, Vajrayana pure lands, where we're gonna talk about, um, well, I, at least I'm gonna be talking about what's called Bayo, hidden lands and sacred geography. And how it is that tantric pure, line, pure land, pure mind, pure land. That, that what you do with your mind affects the environment. And this is why when we go, parenthetically, to sacred spaces, power places, pilgrimage spots, if you've ever been to these places, oh my gosh, are they powerful? I mean, well, the first time I stepped into Bodh Gaya where the Buddha attained his enlightenment, I almost fell over. I mean, there's so much spiritual energy there in that physical place. What's that about? Well, that's because not only the Buddha, but all these amazing beings for so many years have been in that location. And because their mind mixes with that environment, they stamp that space with the purity and the awakeness of their mind. And that's why you feel that sacred quality when you go to those spaces. Conversely, you know, you have a completely opposite kind of mind. It has a completely opposite effect. You know, you, you can walk into an environment and sometimes this, this might even save your life. I've entered some neighborhoods, I've entered some spaces where it's like, I ain't staying here, man. The vibe was so negative. The environment was so dark. It was like, I'm getting out of here as fast as I possibly can. And I'm sure psychics, intuitives, you've had these experiences. Tongue um, Rinpoche says it goes even further than that and it will actually start to affect that land, earthquakes, hurricane. I mean, just like what's happening in the world today, right? That stuff is fantastically powerful. So we're going to be riffing on this, Bob Thurman and I, I think the second program is sometime in March. So I love this stuff, but maybe we'll let it go for now. And on that note, we're going to end on a very cheery question from Ted. This is a great way to, to pollute the whole day. Thanks, Ted, for this question. <laughs> Just kidding. I love this guy. I would love to hear Andrew talk about the shit show in Washington. Oh, that's a great way to end yesterday, maybe how to deal with it. Yeah, how about that yesterday, huh? Um, obviously, I don't need to run commentary on what happened. Um, welcome to samsara. Samsara on steroids. Welcome to the Kali Yuga. How to deal with it, Ted? Oh my gosh, like, is this a big topic or what? Um, we want to have, we want to be big enough um, the issue here, Ted, as I see it, is to have a heart and mind big enough to contain, to relate to this experience in a way that can bring about benefit to self and other. Um, it's extremely easy 
to fall, it's a little bit like this warning I gave about spiritual materialism, um, to fall into these elitist exceptionalist stances as spiritual practitioners that, oh, that's just samsara, that's just whatever, um, you know, I'm, I'm above that. Well, on one level, you, so to speak, your view can be above that. But I mean, what good is that gonna do? I mean, yeah, maybe it may help you because you know, then you won't take it so personally. So the way I work with this, Ted, I can simply tell you that. I can tell you how I work with it, is I let these experiences um, touch me, um, but I don't, let, I don't give them a place to land. In other words, what I mean by that is I don't obsess about them. I, I don't dismiss them. I don't indulge them. I register them. And then to the very best of my pathetic abilities, I tried to bring some level 50,000 foot view of what is really going on here. Because once you collapse down to the street level, you've lost your view. And then you get swept up in this kind of, you know, ideological um, kind of mob mentality. You just don't see. You take everything, which is a fundamental mistake, you get aggressive. So this is when you have to really look at the big thinkers, the Gandhi, the Dalai Lama, Martin Luther King, people who, who dealt with this stuff on a level that we, as, as me, as privileged white man, I will never deal with this. I, don't, I, you know, I can't even approximate what these great men have, have had to work with. But I can admire them. I can emulate them. And I can realize that, therefore, maybe I can have a heart big enough that can accommodate this, have tremendous compassion for the people that are involved, and in particular, and this is where it gets really hard, try to nurture compassion towards the perpetrators. I mean, this may sound like almost cliche, all the great, even traditional exoteric traditions talk about you know, loving thy enemy. Well, not easy, right? So there, what that means is, and Thich Nhat Hanh writes so beautifully about this, this, this relationship of interbeing, raising our gaze, trying to understand that someone like Trump is not the cause, he's a symptom. And so what's the symptomatology here? What, what are the causes and conditions? Interesting in our theme today, what are the causes and conditions systemically that are giving birth to this? That's what we need to do because if we single out, you know, kill that person, change that, it's called single action bias. If you just try to get simplistic and go just that, you'll have a temporary Band-Aid on it, but it's not gonna solve it. So you have to like the really sensitive thinkers, you have to step up 50,000 feet, look down, adult perspective, look down, not in a dismissive sense, and say WTF is really going on here. Lack of education, developmental issues, fear, samsara, th these are psychological, spiritual, educational, developmental issues. And until these situations are addressed, in this complex, multifactorial, systemic way, they're never going to be solved. You'll have temporarily um, obtunded them in the sort. So, you know, again, we could riff on this for days, but for the purposes of time, I, I feel these things. It's like uh, Ken Wilber said, you know, when you progress on the path, you feel things more, but they hurt you less. So personally, I feel it more, but I'm not going to let it hurt me because I'm not going to give it a place to land. The near enemy of that is, oh, I'm not going to feel it. Let somebody else deal with that. No, then that's spiritual bypassing. 
So then I take this view and then try to enter the morass in whatever way I can. What can I do? How can I help? And then again, that's a massive topic. Um, it, hundreds of very sensitive thinkers are, are reading, thinking, writing about this. And so over the last 10 years, um, again, interesting, this is what I started our riff on today. I just increasingly raise my gaze and open my heart to all these other skillful means, really intelligent people that are, so to speak, not spiritual, have a lot to say about how we can help. And so my bias is I try to bring in an integral way as many of these strands as I possibly can, realizing my role. How am I contributing to this? What am I doing that is creating, co-conspiring? Even my silence is conspiratorial, I, I should, uh, um, contributory. If I don't act, even my silence, my participation is contributory. What am I doing to contribute to this? So I would recommend reading Thich Nhat Hanh's work on interbeing. He has some really profound things to say, and he has extreme examples about like a killer. You know, he, he, this is a, not his terminology, this is my terminology, but it's basically story their existence. If you were living in Donald Trump's shoes, if you were born in his environment, I've read about this guy, I've read Mary Trump's, his, toxic, his toxicity, what this guy lived in and what he was brought in, not dismissing his role, but you know, it's like, could I have done any better? Can I actually develop compassion? Story his existence. What is it that conspired to create what we know is this monster? And again, it's a monster that's just in a tremendous amount of pain. I mean, you cannot act this way towards the world without expressing these states towards yourself. And so from that is born the compassion of these great masters like Gandhi and, and I mean, these great religious spiritual figures that transform culture because of the power of these views. And so great question, I'm gonna let it go for now. Um, this would be a terrific thing to have an entire weekend discussion on, but that's the way I work with it, my friend. Um, it's tough stuff, but you know, the greater the obstacle, the greater the opportunity. What are the opportunities here? What can we really do to change? Do we capitulate and just say we're all effed and you know, go on vacation until we all die? Or do we say no? You know, do you read David Lloyd, uh, Ecodharma, from an ecological perspective, read that book. Brilliant about what you do. Listen to the interview I did with him. You know, you don't worry about uh, fruitions, you just do it. You just do what needs to be done. Um, and then the question is what does need to be done? That's, uh, I'll probably let it go because otherwise we'll never get out of here and I need to run. So something like that, my friends, great to see everybody. Um, Back next week, same time, same place. Join us on Tuesday night for the book group if you want. Otherwise, I pre appreciate the, the questions, the comments, and uh, see you around the block, okay?